Hello everyone and welcome back to Election Day. Today I'm going to share with you Professor Alan Lickman's prediction model and prediction for the 2020 elections, which I saw on a New York Times video op-ed. If you haven't seen that, please go watch it. It should come up if you search on Google for New York Times The Keys to the White House or New York Times Alan Lickman. Basically, the model is 13 criteria or factors that determine the next president, and if the incumbent party controls seven of the 13 keys or more, they get re-elected, and if the opposition party, so the Democrats, get six or more of the 13 keys, they win. I'm going to be sharing with you the contents of his model and then my personal take on it. But before I begin properly, What's so special about this election model? Well, first of all, is its successful track record. Alan Lickman successfully predicted every U.S. presidential election from 1984 all the way through and including 2016. That's surprisingly accurate for a model that is, above all, unscientific. It's not mathematically precise because it's not based on polling data whatsoever. Obviously, I'm personally a big believer in data, but Alan Lickman believes that polls are nothing more than snapshots, and for actually forecasting results of an election, it's more useful to look at other factors, like political developments, rather than a numerical abstraction. Another interesting fact that Alan Lickman believes and this model assumes is that the average American voter is very pragmatic. He doesn't believe that the candidates running actually even matter. Their styles, their mannerisms. Alan Lickman's model is entirely based on is the voter satisfied with how the incumbent party has been running the country. Of the 13 factors, only two of them are about the candidates themselves. The model doesn't take into account debate performances or any of the circus of the election cycle. It views the election purely as a referendum on whether we approve of the incumbent party or not, and the direction the country has been headed in for the last four years. It's a surprisingly simple model. All it is is 13 yes or no for or against the incumbent questions that doesn't involve any statistics or math. It's grounded on a rather vague assumption that the election season, in fact, doesn't matter and the candidates don't matter. It's actually in line with the way I think most people, not analysts, would think about the election. You would say, oh, I think Trump's going to win because the economy's doing well. No, I think he's not going to win because he hasn't done anything well foreign policy-wise. It's much more in line with the way regular people would talk about the election. It's surprisingly straightforward, and that's why it's so amazing that it's so remarkably accurate. Anyways, that's enough background on the keys to the White House. I think it's something certainly worth discussing, and that's what I'm about to get into now. Number one, did the incumbent party, so the GOP, gain seats in the House of Representatives in the midterm elections? The answer is absolutely not. 
the 2018 midterms were a democratic landslide. It was called a blue wave. It was liberal voters coming out and stating their opposition to Donald Trump, making their statement against him. And ultimately, Democrats took back the House of Representatives. So the first criteria is basically saying, in the midterms, which is sort of a referendum for or against the first two years of the new president, did the Republicans gain seats? Absolutely not. So the score is Biden won, Trump zero, with the midterms showing the country's disapproval of Trump. The second criteria is, was there a primary challenge for the incumbent party nomination? So did anyone challenge Trump in the Republican primary? The reason this matters is because in a primary challenge, you will have members of the same party attacking each other and revealing each other's flaws, sort of like Democrats went after each other in 2020. And in the case of a re-election year, like it is for Donald Trump, it's evidence that the party is fractured. And while there were some people like Bill Weld trying to run against Trump, these weren't real campaigns. They didn't pose serious threats to Trump's renomination. Even though there is a great proportion of Republicans and conservatives who are against Trump, the GOP as an institution have done a remarkable job of filing behind Trump and sticking by him. So number two, no, there was no primary contest, which gives Trump a point and evens the score at 1-1, proving the GOP's remarkable unity and solidarity behind Trump. The third factor is, is the candidate for the incumbent party the incumbent president? And in 2020, it is. For the GOP, Trump, the sitting president, is their nominee. I mentioned the incumbent advantage in my previous episode, Systems and Technicalities, but essentially, the advantages of a sitting president running for re-election are, number one, that they have financial resources at their disposal, they have money from donations throughout their term, they have donations from their initial campaign, and they don't have to squander a bunch of money in a primary challenge. Number two, in addition to more money for advertising, the second advantage that they have is people know what they're getting. With an incumbent president, even if people aren't fond of them, People have a natural tendency towards inertia. People don't want to take risk. You'd rather have an evil you know than an evil you don't. So the familiarity gives Trump an advantage. And the third one is that Trump in office can make decisions that will help his chances for re-election. For Trump, this is especially the case because we know he will make decisions for the sake of helping his re-election. Anyways, being the incumbent always helps in winning an election, so that gives Trump a point, and he's up two to Biden with one point. The fourth criteria is, is there a major third-party candidate? Not necessarily one that has a genuine shot at winning the election, but one who's big enough to at least influence it. 
And if there is a third party candidate, apparently that helps the opposition candidate because there could be a group of voters who don't like the incumbent party or the incumbent president, but are even more scared of the other party. And so if you provide a third party candidate, you might have that group of voters defecting to the third party. This was a significant impact in 2016, especially in swing states where the margins were so tight because Trump versus Hillary was seen as the lesser of two evils. And lots of Bernie bro voters, people who really didn't like Hillary, ended up voting for a third-party candidate, say Gary Johnson. And that took away enough of the vote that it really hurt the candidate of the incumbent party, which was Hillary Clinton. In 2020, there is no major third-party campaign, so that helps Trump once again, 3-1. to one. Factors number five and six are the short-term and long-term economy. I have talked a lot about the human cost of the coronavirus pandemic, but today I also want to talk about the economic cost. The pandemic has driven the economy into a prolonged recession. This is an economic downturn unseen since the Great Depression, the economy is in a state of continued contraction, not fully recovered still from the 08 financial crisis. Stores are being forced to close down since people have to stay indoors. As businesses are being shut down, people are losing their jobs. Unemployment is at like an all-time high. People are being kicked out of their houses for not being able to pay rent. There are a lot of people who are even struggling to meet basic necessities. So all in all, Trump's inaction from early on, allowing the situation to get this bad, will probably have ended up costing the US economy trillions and trillions of dollars. A good economy is one of the most important things that voters care about above anything else. There were a lot of people who predicted that Trump would win just because the economy was in a strong state. Now that Trump is facing a serious crisis, even the fifth and sixth factors are now not in his favor. People don't care about the things Trump says and does if they're just part of Washington politics. But when it starts to affect their livelihoods, then it just got real. The negative economic impact of COVID-19 is unparalleled in modern history. That is not a situation that helps any incumbent president. So keys 5 and 6 go to Joe Biden, which ties the score at 3-3. For the long-term economy, any economic gains made during Trump's term have definitely been cancelled out by the pandemic. And as for the short-term economy, it doesn't look like America will be in a good shape come November. Number seven. Has the incumbent party and president made significant changes to national policy? Voters want to see that the people they elected are getting stuff done, getting their agenda passed. So for Trump voters in 2016, a lot of them may be very 
pleased to see that Trump is, in fact, making significant policy change. He has reversed almost everything the Obama administration has done. He's repealed bills and executive actions on the environment, on health care, on education. I think it's undoubtable that the Trump administration is one of very, very high consequence. I talked about this in Trump's political revolution, but he will have a profound effect that goes down in American history. So whether for good or for bad, Trump has changed a lot of things. He's really shaken up American policy. According to the model, that significant change helps an incumbent because it shows that they have gotten stuff done. So the seventh criteria goes to Donald Trump. He has a 4-3 to three lead on Joe Biden. Number eight, is there any social unrest during the term of the president? The answer cannot be more confidently yes. Just in recent months, we've had massive protests following the death of George Floyd. We've had Trump's use of federal agents in cities across America, like Portland, to put down these protests. Social unrest and people mobilizing shows a great degree of dissatisfaction among the population. It shows that people definitely aren't happy with the way things are going and need it to change. It sparks and mobilizes antagonistic feelings against the people in charge, which is the administration. And then on the part of the government, it shows either their inability to get the country under control or their ruthlessness in use of measures to suppress it, showing almost authoritarian-like tendencies. I believe the Trump administration has achieved essentially every one of these factors. Just as the Vietnam War protests hurt the presidents that were continuing to take part in the war, so does the Black Lives Matter movement, ensuing civil disobedience, and general social anxiety, tension, and unrest. All of this creates a general atmosphere of instability that does not help the incumbent who is meant to create that stability for the country. Social unrest is evidence of overflowing dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction is unleashed in opposition towards the incumbent. So, four points to Trump, four points to Joe Biden. The ninth criteria is, is the incumbent president free from any major scandals? The answer is unequivocally no. Donald Trump is only the third president to be impeached ever in American history. And he did it by directly saying the words, I need you to do a favor, though, to a foreign leader, asking for election interference. That came right after the first half of his presidency, where essentially the entire time the Mueller investigation into Russian collusion was taking place. Of course, that came up with inconclusive results, and Senate Republicans decided not to remove Trump from office. 
But that doesn't change the fact that the Trump administration has been plagued with scandals and political drama for the entirety of their term. I think I talked about this in my very first episode. I'm not exactly sure which one. But basically, my point is Trump doesn't understand the rules of the game in politics, and he doesn't care about the rules of the game. So, of course, it's inevitable that he will break the rules and come up with all these different scandals, and he has. And for obvious reasons, people don't want a scandal-ridden administration. People want the government to bring them stability. People want their leaders to be innocent and uncontroversial, not accused of committing high crimes and misdemeanors. One of the main things the Trump administration is characterized by is controversy, scandal, and breaking news headlines. So absolutely the Trump administration is affected by scandals, and that works against him. Biden is now up five factors to four. Number 10 and 11 are, did Donald Trump cause a major foreign or military success, and did he cause a major foreign or military failure? When we think about both of these questions, we need to think a little bit about Donald Trump's view of the world and his general concept when it comes to foreign relations. Donald Trump is an isolationist. His campaign slogan was America first. Let's focus inward and then start caring about what's going on in the rest of the world. So when it comes to effects and influence abroad, Donald Trump is very minimal, both in successes and in failures. Obviously, we had a couple close calls with, for example, North Korea. We had close calls with Iran. There was a big trade war with China. And then there was the whole incident with NATO and wanting to perhaps weaken that relationship. But all in all, those were just Trump's personal conflicts. We all know that Trump is very emotionally volatile, and his feelings at the time greatly influence his decisions and what he says publicly about other countries. So with Iran or North Korea or China, I don't consider these prolonged trends of tension. They were just things that happened momentarily, and also none of them led to a point of war, for instance, where Trump might have dragged the U.S. into a major military conflict and then either won or lost, which would be a success or a failure. Trump is not like Biden. Biden prides himself on his foreign policy and foreign relations record. That was most of his job in the Senate and as vice president. Him and Kamala believe that the U.S. should take a proactive stance in preserving the liberal democratic order of the 21st century world. Trump's not like that. Trump doesn't want to get involved. So he hasn't gotten himself into a major success or a major failure. That gives one point to Trump and one point to Biden. The score is 6-5 to five with Biden up by 1. The penultimate category is, is the incumbent candidate charismatic? This was one where Alan Lickman's interpretation of the guidelines really surprised me, because Donald Trump is always the person I associated with being the more charismatic candidate. He's very energetic and assertive in the way he talks, but Alan Lickman defines charismatic slightly more differently. 
He says, Donald Trump only appeals to a very small portion of the American population. He's definitely not beloved, and he's also not a national hero who's done some great accomplishment for the country prior to the presidency. So Alan Lickman says that because he cannot have that profound effect on a lot of people besides his very narrow base of voters, Donald Trump cannot be seen as charismatic. Sure, the Trump people in certain parts of the country will be really attracted to his mannerisms and say he is a charismatic candidate, but he does not appeal to enough people to fulfill this category. This is the one category that I think really tipped me off at first, but when I think about it, I do agree with this definition of what it means to be a charismatic candidate. And it's not Donald Trump. He does not stand up to the likes of Ronald Reagan or John F. Kennedy. That gives a point to Joe Biden. The score is 7 to 5. The final category is, is the opposition, so Joe Biden charismatic. This is one that I talk about very often. The answer is no. Joe Biden is very plain. And people, there are people who actually like him, they think he's a nice person, but no one would consider him as an inspiring, exciting figure who can rally the country. He's not that kind of a leader. Joe Biden has referred to himself as a transitional president, the person who will just cut Trump short and then groom for the next generation of the Democratic Party and set up for someone to be a more impactful leader. Joe Biden is unthreatening, but that also means he's uncharismatic. Not that many people love Joe Biden, even if they have a relatively positive impression of him. Like I said in the Trump segment, he does not stand up even close to Ronald Reagan or John F. Kennedy. That gives a point to Trump, which means the final score is seven factors for Joe Biden, and six factors for Donald Trump, which means that Joe Biden wins the presidency according to the Keys to the White House model. With this outcome, one of the things that I maybe disagree with is that 7 to 6, that's a, a really tight margin actually. 7 to 6 is not the blowout that I often portray the election as. And maybe that's right. Clearly this guy knows a lot more than I do, and I would say 7-6 is probably much more in line with the mainstream view of the 2020 elections that maybe people talk about in the home. So it's really amazing that the 13 Keys to the White House model ends up producing the conventional wisdom answer, which is that Joe Biden just edges Trump. Another implication of the 13 Keys model is that coronavirus really hurt Trump hard. The economy was in pretty good shape before COVID hit. If we take two points from Biden, the two economy points, and then give them to Trump, well, Trump just won the election, eight points to five. Alan Lickman's model basically says that the pandemic by killing the economy also killed Trump's chances at 2020. Maybe that's right. I would say that's a fairly reasonable interpretation because I personally know a lot of people, ardent Trump supporters, 
who still support Trump even after his handling of coronavirus, but say he was wrong when it comes to COVID. He did not do a good job. I still support him, but relating to coronavirus, he did a bad job. He did a really bad job. And so I would envision that there are probably many people who who even supported Trump before corona, but now disapprove of him because of the way he has hurt their lives. At the end of the New York Times video op-ed, Alan Lickman does acknowledge that there are many factors at play beyond the 13 keys. Especially this year, the logistics of the election itself are going to be a major, major hurdle, aside from simply who the ballots are cast for. I think mail-in voting is going to be a big political battle. Trump does not want to see higher voter turnout. It doesn't help his chances. He said on live TV that he wants to cut funding to the USPS to make it harder to vote. Beyond that, there's even more voter suppression. There is the chance of foreign interference once again. There's the chance that Trump might not leave office and cause some big civil war. There are so, so, so many things about 2020 in particular that are just so hard to predict. I do like that Trump slashing funding to the USPS has become a big subject of debate recently. There's been a lot more attention surrounding helping out and funding the USPS, making sure that they can continue to operate until November 3rd. And just recently, because of the many lawsuit threats, the USPS has announced that they will postpone any changes like post office closures until after the election. Still, it's an issue worth keeping an eye on, and it's gained many liberal advocates like AOC or Elizabeth Warren. At the end, Professor Lichtman basically says, don't take elections as a given. They're not something that will be fulfilled according to whatever all the predictions said. An election is chosen by the voter. The message of the video op-ed is, you pick your own destiny. You vote and make your voice heard. I totally agree on this. In this episode, I touched on so many different topics from the different foreign policies of Trump and Biden to the economic situation caused by coronavirus. But ultimately, it's in the hands of the voter. So take all that into consideration and make what you think is the right choice. That's it for this episode. Next week, I'm going to be talking about the Democratic National Convention from this week and then the Republican National Convention, which will take place next week. So for that, please tune into Election Day next Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time and every Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for listening.